Hello and welcome. You've tuned into the School of Ministry podcast. Paul is your Bible teacher today. He has years of experience as a pastor, seminary instructor, and more. Later, you will be given information how to reach us. If you have questions you would like addressed, let us know. Maybe you have a need in your life and want to know how the Bible gives answers that apply to us today. Feel free to contact us. Now enjoy the lesson. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask that you'll open them with me, please, to James chapter 1. We're going to read verses 12 through 18, and Lord willing, we'll get through. But if we get two points today, I'll be just about right. There's a lot we can be thankful for, isn't there, in everything. James chapter 1, beginning in verse 12. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when his desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good and perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Let's stop right there. James, of course, this is the oldest book of the New Testament. James, the half-brother of Jesus Christ, I believe is the author, and he's referring to some things that we'll go back and see that Christ spoke about on the Sermon on the Mount. We've already spoken about portions of verse 12. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life. So we've spoken about some of that from verse 12, and there's just a couple of thoughts that I want us to think about as we're moving on in this passage, that it connects everything and it ties because here, from verse 12 to 13, James makes a little shift. And it shifts from counting everything joy to seeing God's providence and our position when temptations come. Because temptation will come. And that's what he speaks about in verse 12. Blessed is the man who endures temptation. That's the idea of trials. Trials is really kind of the better translation right there. And it literally means to pass the test. That blessed is the man who passes the test. It's kind of the way that we might think of it. The child of God that's victoriously gone through all of those trials. Now he's on the other side and he's looking back. He's seeing what he's already gone through. And we know to the Christian... Death is said to be the coronation. Death is the highlight. Because we are pictured, and really kind of the picture here is that of a regal prince after he has gone out and made conquest in a land and he has gone through the very struggles and all that would take in fighting to take over other lands. Now he's come back to be crowned 
as the prince or the king. He's going to be honored for his deeds. You know, the Bible says that we are pilgrims, strangers in this land. We're just going through. This world is not our home. This world is not where we belong. Our citizenship is in heaven. We're looking for a better home, a better place, a better city. And to him who is faithful, Christ is going to give the crown of life. Isn't that what it just said? To him who, when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. So there's the promise. There's the coronation. We're going through and we're pressing on. And at this point, in verse 12, we're saying we're looking back and we've seen all that we've been through and we're looking forward to the coronation day. That's what Paul said. Henceforth, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day. And not to me only, but unto them also that love his appearing. That's 2 Timothy 4 and verse 8. It was D.L. Moody that they wrote and they said when he was on his deathbed that he looked up, he says he looked up to heaven and he said, earth is receding, heaven is opening. This is my coronation day. I hope we could all have that. When we close our eyes at death on this side and we see heaven open and we're saying, this is coronation day. Yes, to the child of God, the Christian, the Christian coronation, it's the end of conflict, it's the beginning of glory, it's the triumph of heaven. It's now seeing that all of this world that we've gone through, it's all been worth it because of what Christ has done. And that He has accomplished this. And now we can come boldly, truly boldly to the throne. We come now boldly to the throne of grace by prayer. But then we will boldly go before the Lord's throne. I'm going to jump down if we will. Look at verse 14 very quickly. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own lust and enticed. If we look at that, each one is tempted or every man is tempted. We can all give a testimony of testings, of temptations. And I bet you we can get a lot of testimonies. We're having a testimonial service of all of the trials that maybe you've gone through. All of the temptations. And everyone has been tempted. Temptation is a common experience to every human being. To every human being. Not just Christians. All of us. Temptation is a common experience. Christian, non-Christian. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10 that temptation is common to man. And one ancient writer said that even when we are saved, we have to remember that our baptism did not drown our flesh. We still come up, even though we are a new creation, temptation is common to every man. And so when we all face that battle of temptation, it's how we face that battle. And that is what's going to mark the genuineness of our faith. That's what's going to separate us. So that as we're going through, as a child of God, as we're going through temptations, how do we stand the trial? The non-Christian is going to reveal. Their, their works are going to be shown. It's going to show how far short they have fallen. And so that's what we looked at. 
from verses 2 through 12, the genuineness, the testing of our faith, and it shows that when those trials come, it, it shows our genuine faith. And it's normal for unredeemed people kind of blame their sin on everything else. Their sinful life, it's never their fault. And when they're tempted and fall into sin, they're going to say, it's this one, it's that one. Got my little grandson here, three years old, and I promised his mom I would tell this story the other day that uh, he's a joy, but uh, he's really uh, the epitome of being a man of mankind because he had gotten into something and had his toys all spread around, and mom came up and said, who got all these toys out? Turns to his 10-month-old sister, Ren did it. <laughs> Ren's crawling. <laughs> She's not getting all those. Well, so you get the idea. At even a young age, it's blaming someone else. It's looking and we're saying, wait, somebody else did it. So it's typical. Children come into the world and they refuse to take responsibility for their actions. It's a knee-jerk reaction, isn't it? That, well, I didn't do it. It was somebody else's fault. It wasn't my fault. You don't understand. But really accepting full responsibility for our weakness, for our temptation, it doesn't come easy to mankind. It doesn't come easy for us. Children shirk the guilt of their own wrong. And you know, when we grow up as adults, we pretty well, pretty much do the same thing. We can do pretty much the same. It's so easy to say, well, look at all of the others. James in this passage is saying how you respond to temptation and where you put the blame is another indicator of the genuineness of our faith. It shows if it's a genuine faith. It shows if we're really believing. Now, in the sense that it has changed from verse 12 to 13, let me just look at that. Because blessed is the man who endures temptation or trials, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. But no one... Let no one say when he is tempted. Now, this is another idea of temptation. This is that enticing to sin, that, that solicitation to come over and sin. And so there's a change there. It's a quick change. So we've been talking about trials. We've been talking about the tribulations that man goes through. And now we're talking about that temptation into sin. So he's used the very word about trials that come into our life that make us strong. Now he's talking about what happens when we fail. The outward circumstances that test of our faith. The trials cause us to grow spiritually, but these trials can also become temptations. And rather than a means for spiritual growth, it's that drawing us away into evil. And every difficult thing that comes into our life, it either strengthens me because I obey God and I stay confident in His care. I'm trusting in His power and I grow and I am tempted, you know, that we can go through this when that temptation comes. Or if I am tempted and I choose to disobey God, to doubt God, to doubt His Word, to do what is expedient and so on, I have fallen to the solicitation of evil. So that's what we're looking at. The same word that means that enticement to evil is also used to speak of a trial. So the difference is 
how you respond. How do we respond when that comes? If you respond to a trial with obedience, then you see the spiritual growth. You see what's beginning to happen. But if you respond to a trial with disobedience, it has turned into a temptation and you've fallen prey to it. You see the difference? So James is making that shift from trials that lead to growth and blessing to those temptations that lead to sin and death. And every circumstance of life then that we face means that we have a decision to make. It requires a decision. Will I persevere? Will I continue on? Will I move ahead? Will I move by faith in God? Or will I move in disobedience to His Word? Will I listen to that voice that suggests, hey, take the easy way out? What am I going to listen? Is it disobedience and I fall into sin? Or will I obey? Now, if I fall into sin, whose fault is it? It's God's fault. If He brings trials and allows them, and that's a question, is it God's fault? Is it the fault of my circumstances? Is it the fault of being created by God the way that I am, that I just can't help it? Whose fault is it? If it's God that brings the trials, then is He responsible for my temptations? See, the issue is who is to blame in temptation for sin. It's really, that's the heart of this passage. That's what really what we're talking about. The issue is who is to blame. Think about back in Genesis chapter 3. Adam and Eve have sinned. They've eaten of the fruit. And what happens? God comes to speak to Adam in verse 9. And he's asking, where are you? And of course, Adam and Eve have hidden. And when the Lord finds them, he says, I heard your voice in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He'd never done that before. God had come and they had walked in the cool of the day. But when he had anticipated and because he had been in sin in his life, he was afraid of facing an infinite and holy God. He was afraid of, of having to stand before the Lord. So he was hiding. And he said to him, God said to him in verse 11, Who told you you were naked? All of a sudden, that self-consciousness had never been there before. Have you eaten of the tree whereof I have commanded you not to eat? And all Adam had to say was, yes, forgive me, Lord. And what does he say? The woman you gave me. <laughs> Let's shift the blame a little bit. She gave me of the tree and I did eat. Right? Isn't that kind of what he's saying there? Whose fault was it? Well, maybe it's the woman's fault. The woman. Right? But then after all, think about it, he went to sleep and he wakes up and he's married. <laughs> he wakes up and here's a woman he'd never seen. There'd never been a woman before. And all of a sudden there she was. He didn't choose this one. God made this woman and gave to the perfect mate. Well, now he's beginning to think, well, who is this woman? Why did you give her to me? The woman which you gave me. She did this. So, the real issue is he's not really blaming Eve. Really, the statement is, you are at fault, God. You did this. You could have picked any woman. You could have made any woman you wanted. But this woman, 
did that. Why did you make a woman who would do that? You see the idea behind this? You see what's going into that? By the way, Adam isn't the only one that spoke to God in those terms. <laughs> if you look down, look, verse 13 talks about that God said to the woman, What is this that thou hast done? And the woman said, I did it. No, <laughs> that's not what she said. The woman said, The serpent has beguiled me. In other words, the serpent which you made has come and tricked me. I'm a victim just like my husband. It's something you created. I was in this wonderful garden and all of a sudden a snake came up and began to talk to me. And he showed up. I didn't make the snake. I didn't make the snake to talk. So the blame is placed back on God. And so it has been ever since. God made me. God made me with my sinfulness. God made me in these circumstances. God put me in this situation. I'm in this marriage. God gave me my surroundings. It's God's scene. It's not my fault. Isn't that what Adam is saying? And isn't that what sometimes we say? Isaiah 63 verse 17, we hear a strange statement. He says, O Lord, thou hast made us to err from the ways and hardened our heart from thy fear. What a terrible thing to blame God for our sin. But it is the tendency of fallen man. It is the tendency of our fallen flesh. We want to shirk responsibility. We want to get away from our behavior. And after all, then let's put the blame back on God. We're all tempted. We all sin. And frequently we'll blame God by blaming our circumstances. Blaming our weaknesses. Blaming our propensities or blaming our surroundings. Blaming our friends. Blaming our 10-month-old sister. <laughs> blaming our relatives. Blaming our family. Blaming our economic condition. And I can go on, whatever it might be. So in verse 13, James says, Let no one say when he is tempted. Let no man say. Let no one say that it was God. We cannot get away with blaming God. Robert Burns was a Scottish poet, and he wrote, Thou knowest, thou hast formed me with passions wild and strong, and listening to their witching voice has oft led me wrong. So many think, well, God, you made these passions. You made me the way I am, and you've led me off. As a matter of fact, the ancient rabbis believed that. That we had that susceptibility to temptation because God made us that way. As a matter of fact, they call it Yetzer Hara. And they said Yetzer Hara is man's evil impulse as opposed to good, that good impulse. And the Jews reasoned that because God had created everything and he had created man, he must have created Yetzer Hara because he made everything and so he must have made that and so the rabbis have a saying kind of like this. God said, it repents me that I have created the evil tendency in man. For had I not done so, he would not have rebelled against me. I created the evil tendency. I created the law as a means of healing. Do you get that idea? That's the idea that God placed the good tendency on the man's right hand and the evil tendency on man's left hand. And then the law shows me what is right and what is wrong. Well, that's a rabbinic saying. So it's strange that it's an ancient belief that God is responsible for our temptation and our sin. And James absolutely forbids such a thought. Do not 
Go there. Do not think that way. In fact, he implies that someone who really knows God has a kind of a meekness and a brokenness about that capability for sin. That we understand that I should not even think about blaming God. And as a continual act, although occasionally we may fall into that disillusionment. But again in verse 13, he says, Let no one say when he is tempted. And notice this is in quotations. I am tempted by God. So it's as if he's saying, here's what people say. This is what is being quoted back. Like someone is really using that phrase. I'm tempted of God. And it's every situation. Now, there's something that's very interesting here in the little preposition. Now, in my New King James, it says, I am tempted by God. Some might say, I am tempted of God. And you might not think there's much there. It is the Greek word, apo. Now, there's two words that have translated this way. Upo or apo. A-P-O, U-P-O. And it's very important because apo means that it's remote. It's distant. It's somewhere far off. Upo means a direct agency. This is something that's happening directly to me. So the one who is actually doing it here, that, that's the idea. And that's the Lord inspired the word apo here, which is remote. And so what he is saying is, let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. Not that God here is directly tempting me, but he is remotely the cause. He has put me in this circumstance so that remotely he's been the cause of my temptation. So that at a distance, God is the one who created me this way. He created my circumstances. He put me in this environment. He's caused all these things to happen. And so I'm really not responsible. It's not unusual for someone to say, God is actually, or maybe it is (laughs) not usual for someone to say that God's soliciting me to do evil. But it's common for us to say, well, God's put me in this situation, therefore, He is ultimately responsible for what I do. Men don't go so far as to see that God's the direct tempter, but we often want to make Him the indirect recipient of our blame. Apo, here, by permitting the situation, he's saying the possibility just doesn't exist. Let no one say that God is even remotely responsible. You know, in the sense that we might think, well, this isn't blaming Satan. This isn't blaming demons. This isn't blaming the world. This isn't blaming anything else that takes place. But here he's saying you cannot blame God. You cannot say that God's done that. Thank you for listening. We hope you've enjoyed the message. We trust you've been encouraged, challenged, or generally built up spiritually. If this lesson has sparked questions on this or other topics, please see our contact information in the description or email us at sclofministry at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing from you.